I've been uh, I've been catching up this week on Succession. I got like halfway through th- season three and then like didn't finish it last time. I don't know why. Yeah. Life. Um, but it's like the second half of it is kind of all about streaming. And I think mm-hmm. it's so funny because I feel like the I don't know what that season came out like two years, two years like ago last like last like last November two, November two years back i think yeah, sometime yeah, yeah. around then um and like the the way they're talking about streaming then is like already so outdated from like the way that we talk about streaming now. <laughs> i mean it's like technology man it's like i always say the hardest the hardest in the capture in film or, or the two things that become dead so quickly in film are comedy and technology mm. um because it's just both are changing evolving so much um with society in some way yeah and yeah it's it's hard it'll be interesting too because it's the it's the alexander skarsgård plot line which is continuing into this season but Uh like skarsgård is like a tech mobile who built this like really good streaming platform but doesn't Mm -hmm. have anything good to stream on it and obviously <clears throat> you know brian cox is walt disney basically <laughs> mixed in with a little rupert murdoch yeah but, so they're having these conversations of like we've got all the content but we have a terrible platform you've got a great platform but not good content and then it's yeah. just this back and forth of like well we should merge but who should buy who like who uh. who is entering into this deal with the most value and i feel like you know that was like two years ago when these big companies were trying to gobble up content but now it's like eh, i don't I don't really need that content anymore. Yeah, that's that's what's becoming like. It's it's like it's like uh, maybe we went too hard into streaming. It feels like that's mm-hmm. what. I mean, it, again, we've talked about recently. It's like I think the theatrical experience is a very interesting place right now. It's like if you look at, I, was, I won't say fully what I was going to say initially, but like I don't want to talk too badly about certain movies, but like a lot of movies that I want to do well have done well, and the ones that I'm like, I'm happy that didn't do well, didn't do, like, didn't do well. Like, you know what I mean? It, it's like, yeah. and I'm not saying bad by it, but it's like, there's certain movies where like, and I was telling my friend, I was like, I was telling David actually, I was like, I know it's still sequels, but like, something like Scream 6 or Creed 3, I'm happy does John really Wick well. 4. John Wick 4, like, they're overperforming. Yeah. And that says to me that I think audiences, while still sequel-based and franchise-based, I still think a lot of those still spurred from an original idea at the beginning of the day i mean that's exactly how i felt like coming out of avatar 2 i was like i know it's the sequel to like the biggest movie ever made but it still feels like different it feels different exactly it's like it's not based i mean it's not based on a superhero thing it's not based on a video game granted i know certain people love those and some of them are doing incredibly well i'm not dissing them all it's just like i think there's something to be said for a variety in the market is the mm-hmm. thing both on and television I, and I, film i know there's a really interesting twitter thread uh kind of about avatar 2 like right before it came out to where somebody was like you know what i love about avatar 2 there's no discourse <laughs> about like spoilers going like nobody cares. yeah yeah <laughs> it's just like you just go I, to see the spectacle of it and nobody cares if you spoil an easter egg halfway yep. through the movie i didn't i didn't hear anything about it and i was i told i, I told david i was like yeah i haven't been spoiled yet he goes well, I mean, it's not only really movie can be spoiled by. Like we all knew, we all like Cameron was just like, yeah, you know, uh, what, what's his face, Quaritch or whatever, he's back. Yeah. We were yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. okay, cool. Yeah. Like, that's maybe the yeah. only that surprise. was the next, well, yeah. He's like, but he and he did that in his, in his press interview. He's like, yeah, um, uh, we didn't put it in the trailer. I'm surprised no one saw it. That yeah, he uh, uh he's back. <laughs> Stephen Stephen Lang's back. I'm like, okay. I mean, I figured he was. I saw the cast list. So like, yeah, well, you know. 
you 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 brought up kind of not based on a based on a video game based on a uh, comic book mm. that ip we're, we're, we are going to be talking about ip today we are we are <laughs> and uh and, and how hollywood tr- sometimes tries to squeeze ip into a box that it might not uh it might that's not a great fit that's a great segue tom <laughs> <laughs> I'm Brian Sparks. I'm Thomas Horton. And this is the Nation Podcast, and let's go into it, actually. So we've been talking about movies on movies this month. And what, what have we kind of discussed this month so far, Thomas? You know, we've really covered, I think we've we've covered, like, so many different areas of, like, filmmaking yeah. through movies on movies. Because we've kind of gotten, like, the dark side of Hollywood, and then we got indie bootstraps filmmaking, and then you guys yeah. covered uh, covered kind of Italian New Wave and um and then the thriller the, like like the thriller genre within this genre with blowout basically mm-hmm. like yeah. and that was also schlocky horror films that he was making and he, it was we're seeing it from a sound designer's perspective mm-hmm. we've seen from director's perspective a, a kind of a writer's uh, actress perspective um so yeah it's been a variety so we've got something a little bit different today we're going to be talking specifically about a writer's perspective and Mm -hmm. and not really like the process of filmmaking but the process of of writing a script and that is with 2002's adaptation Mm -hmm. so cast intro real quick we got nicholas cage doing double duty we got meryl streep chris cooper tilda swinton maggie gyllenhaal little judy early judy greer action early judy greer yeah so yeah it, ron it's, livingston it's a, very young ron livingston and speaking of, speaking of succession brian cox i don't know if you brian cox <laughs> yep yeah and then this is uh written by charlie kaufman and directed by spike jones yeah brandon what's your what's your background with adaptation so my history of adaptation um this is my second time watching it oh okay i don't think i've seen it since late high school early college Hmm. so at least a decade um there's certain things i mean of course i still remembered certain things like nicholas cage's dual performance as charlie and donald um brian cox seems to stuck with me as robert mckee uh (laughs) because not long i talk about voiceover a lot (laughs) we talk about about voiceover a lot and how i usually don't like it is the thing um and i wondered if it spurred from this movie because there are moments i go Oh uh, yeah, 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 that checks out. That checks out with me. <laughs> like there is stuff in this, and not to jump too far ahead, but like with the, with kind of Kaufman's inner monologue, I'm like, oh, this sounds like me sometimes when I'm writing, where it's, <laughs> where it's like it's it's the insecurities pop in, and then you're like, or like you're doing very well, and you're like, I'm on a roll, and then something just happens. Like I'm a horrible writer. Yeah, what am follow, I doing? Follow a thread for like pages and pages, and then you're like, I'm throwing all of that out. <laughs> uh, yeah, and 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 so so it was funny coming back to that now, and I'm like, oh yeah, this he really they, he really captures that. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's one that I I remember a, a, a lot. Um, the 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 Brian Cox Robert McKee stuff. I think I saw and then it stuck with it because not long after, I had a professor who's like, "You should read Robert McKee's story." Is the thing which I did, um, and we'll talk about. Not to I want to I don't want to say it's a a a a text you should always follow, um, but with any type of screenwriting book, I think there's always something in there you can take away. But you mm-hmm. don't have to stick to fully, yeah. um, and so it principles. was funny. Principles. It's like, and I had so many people, 
like if I'm in, I think I was in like when I was an internship, I won't say which internship, but one of the internships like dissed Robert McKee's story because they said, oh, you're from USC, so you only follow Robert McKee's story. I was like, not <laughs> true. I was like, I, I feel like you guys don't understand who's in my class at USC right now because they, <laughs> they could care less about Robert McKee. And, and, yeah, and a lot of and, our, a lot of our professors uh, could care less also. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 yeah, I had. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I had I remember once one classmate in like the first semester in our writing class and she was like, but why do we have to follow a three act structure? Why can't I just do what I want? And they're mm-hmm. like, well, you have to do that. You're like, She's like, well, I don't really want to. And I'm like, mm-hmm. OK. Um, and I and I'll have debates of what you should follow and what you shouldn't follow. But it's at the end of the day, it comes down to what you want to write. Mm-hmm. And yeah. if, if, if you can get made, great. I mean, I've, I've had this recently with one of my things where someone was and, and hearing it in this movie was very uh, hum, or it was very it was nice to hear where I had someone like, oh, yeah, your script doesn't really have any conflict whatsoever. Stuff just kind of happens. I'm like, oh, OK, <laughs> it happens. In my, in my opinion, it happens. It's very minuscule, but OK. Um, and this, this movie feels almost like it almost becomes parody in a way of certain, of certain movies, if that makes sense. They're mm-hmm. talking about like fitting things into an IP. Um, so yeah, but history wise, it's like saw it once really liked it. And now as I've gotten older and revisiting it, I've, I, I feel like I, I'll have more appreciation for it now. Um, and we'll discuss more about it, but what was your history with this movie? I didn't, I didn't see this one until college. I distinctly remember when it came out, it was at the like front desk of my blockbuster for weeks. Yeah. Like our manager, the manager of my local blockbuster must have loved it because it was just like <laughs> sitting like right there like, hey, check out adaptation because it's, you know, it's such a distinctive uh, yeah. poster or, or VHS cover with with kind of Nicolas Cage's face on a flower pot that's been broken. Yeah. And this, uh, is that, that, this is very much like a local video store movie when it comes out like mm-hmm. i won't say like your niche indie store but i could feel like your 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 people at blockbuster movie galleries and family video or hollywood video were all like adaptations where it's at that's so unique and different it's like it's it's one of those things where because of everyone involved in it it's mainstream mm-hmm. but it's so out there for a mainstream film is the yeah. thing yeah, so so I definitely remember being very aware of it, um, yeah. but I didn't come to it until college. I took a, a film class that was actually within, because I was a communications major, and it was actually a film class within the comm uh, school that was like mm-hmm. comm theory in film, Okay, um, which was a really interesting class. Uh, I think we did like Fargo, and I know we watched uh, Rushmore in that. But um, and Lahane, that was the first mm-hmm. time I had seen Lahane. Um, but we watched this one to talk about postmodernism. Uh, yeah, and it was interesting. I went back and pulled. I still have all my, I still have all my folders from college, which you know <laughs> sometimes comes in handy because I have yeah. the, I have the like two uh, kind of scholarly texts that we read for this movie, and I thought it was really interesting. Oh, wow. I, I went back and read through both of them, and there's one by David L. Smith. Uh, called the implicit soul of Charlie Kaufman's adaptation, and this is something we talked about in class: is is this postmodern or is this post postmodern? <laughs> Which is, is really, I, I think it's something good to kind of talk about yeah. as we as we dive into this, because it's yeah. you know it's ultimately about rejecting your postmodern instincts to get back to 
traditional storytelling. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So we we talked about that in class. But yeah, that was my that was my intro to this movie, and I've revisited it. I've gone back. I, I think we were seniors in college when when her came out. Mm-hmm. And I was just like so blown away by her that I went back. I had seen most of Spike Jones's movies, but I went back and like rewatched yeah. all of them all over again. And and I've definitely popped this one on every once in a while yeah. since then. Um, but it's also one that I I have since uh, this I this was my intro to Susan Orlean, and I, <laughs> I've since like read several of Susan Orlean's oh, books. Wow and and it's kind of funny whenever susan orlean comes up i'm always like in conversation i'm always like oh have you seen adaptation and then if people haven't i'm like you gotta see it it's this movie it. about susan orlean but it's not about susan orlean but um she, she actually recently there's a, a show on hbo called how to with john wilson that's a that's a very dry like parody docuseries and uh-huh. she was a staff writer on it last oh wow last season uh, she's like i, I just, understand i was <laughs> just like why is susan orlean working on this comedy series but um <laughs> it's really interesting it's a really really cool series but yeah so I've, I've come back and forth with it uh throughout the years and it's just always feels like a touchstone for that kind of movement in the early 2000s when when yeah. meta narrative and, and kind of postmodern humor really started to come up and as as we've talked about with kind yeah. of Josie and the Pussycats and some other some other movies that we've championed you know people just weren't ready for it from like 2000 nope. to 2005 or 6 I was talking about Josie and the Pussycats literally last night to someone <laughs> cuz I was well cuz it was again it was David and we were talking he was talking about Rachel Cook and I was just like yeah she didn't really take off as much as they want I was like I think because Josie and the Pussycats just didn't do well and I feel like she could have had a very different career path if that in the in the two thousands era if that would have done uh, much better and people understood it at the time. Um, but also too with this movie talking about Chai Kaufman to kind of explain, like the I, I think with him and my appreciation for him, I think um, Eternal Sunshine the Spotless Mind is like a big one. Yeah. Like oh yeah. I think I think what I find fascinating with him is that. I haven't revisited being John Malkovich in a long time, but I think we talked about this in class at, at, at USC where like we showed eternal sunshine spotless mind and how like, even though it's out there and different and unique and you think there's no structure, there is some sort of structure to it is the mm-hmm. thing. And I think that's so interesting with someone like Kaufman where a lot of the times while he's so kind of out there and different and unique and people kind of like him cause he's, He's he's uh shapeless in a way in terms of his his scripts. I think a lot of times he he hides the structure very well within his story mm-hmm. is the thing. And yeah. this one he does it well too. It's it's a little more apparent because I think it's trying to be like a, a parent and like a kind of a parody of it in a way mm-hmm. towards the end. But he still hides the structure very well within this narrative is the thing. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I you and I had a conversation. I texted all the all the guys in our group text uh, a couple months back now it's just like what what do you consider like a, a masterpiece that was made within our lifetime because mm-hmm. because we so often think of like older films as masterpieces yeah. and yeah. and eternal sunshine is probably for me the two i think of are children of men and eternal sunshine i think yeah. eternal sunshine is is a nearly like spotless movie um but yeah it's that's not spot, what we're talking spot, about spotless I got, yeah. Like, yeah exactly <laughs> um 
but today we're talking about adaptation, which came before yeah. Eternal Sunshine. It did. This one's it an inter- This was an interesting script to write for the for our podcast because um, <laughs> a lot of how it got made is in the movie. So I'm I'm gonna try and not to hit too many points and to to kind of highlight the differences of the of of the true life and and of the movie. Yeah. But as you probably know, if you've seen the movie, and, and I'm not even going to give you a spoiler alert here because we can't, can't talk about the making of the movie without talking about the yeah. plot of the movie. But the story of adaptation starts with New Yorker writer Susan Orlean finding out about orchid thief John LaRoche. Uh, Orlean had seen about him in, in headlines uh, because he was caught stealing orchids from protected lands in Florida and was using uh, Native Americans and a kind of legal loophole to get away with doing it in in was was very brazen about it mm-hmm. so orlean traveled down and spent some time with laroche and she published her first article on him in 1995 in the new yorker titled orchid fever then this happens more often than you'd think in film development and in hollywood but orlean landed a book deal to expand her article into a book at the same time that she was approached by movie studios to develop a feature film off of the book as the book was being written this mm-hmm. happens a lot more than 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 you would think a lot of times people are sending in chapters of their manuscript yeah. to the studio to work on their development of it while they're also uh writing it because you know movies take a long time to to yeah. make so you know now if if you've got something that comes out and you and it's you know in Reese's book club yeah, yeah. and then the movie comes out within a year, then that's absolutely been in development at the same time because well, you, you want to hit it around the same time. Yeah. I mean, example, I just, I just watched the offer on Paramount plus finally, cause we're talking about movies on movies on movies. Mm-hmm. And with the Godfather was an example where they bought it in galleys, which basically means like it was a finished book, but it was not yet published. It was just still like a manuscript mm-hmm. form. And they bought it kind of just on like a lark, like, hey, we'll, we'll we'll send a flyer out and let's see what happens. It's a gangster movie. It's a gangster book, sure. And then they buy it for almost nothing because it was because uh uh it was an unknown writer basically, and then it becomes like the best selling book of all time almost. And they're like, hey, we lucked out and had the book. Let's make it <laughs> to a movie. Um, yeah. and that just happens sometimes. And like we, when I did internships, we'd be reading books before they're published. Oh yeah. Yeah, we had manuscripts coming in all the time. To see if it was like, hey, is this something we could do? And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. (laughs) A lot lot of the time. That happens a lot with with reading for developments. Eh, It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So the now defunct uh, mid-budget development wing of of Fox, which was called Fox 2000, RIP. Oh, yeah. That was a thing. (laughs) They were the first to acquire the film rights in 1997, as Orlean was putting finishing touches on her manuscript, which would be released in 1998. Fox 2000 eventually sold the rights to Jonathan Demme, who mm. set the project up at Columbia Pictures under Amy Pascal, someone we've talked about uh, yeah. many times on this podcast. Yeah. The project was headed up by exec VP of production Amy Bauer, who is noted as having the most eclectic taste of the production team at Columbia at the time. So... I don't think this movie would exist if uh, if Amy Bauer wasn't kind of overseeing the development process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting is, to is, know is she is she is she our uh, Tilda Swinton? She's our Tilda Swinton character. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's interesting to note that a Variety article that interviews Bauer about the process of making adaptation the year that it released they they note some of her upcoming projects and it's just so it's so interesting to me to read this 2002 article that has 
you know they're like ah this is coming up and like none of these happen but (laughs) you know so it's got uh her next project after adaptation is going to be memoirs of a geisha uh steven spielberg Mm -hmm. had just dropped out and spike jones was attached to direct no Uh, really (laughs) yes and i haven't seen memoirs of geisha but that's not a spike jones movie uh that's a uh, rob marshall and rob marshall that, directed yeah. it yes rob marshall po- it was his follow-up to chicago i believe yeah which chicago was came out this exact year's adaptation so there you go the the other project she was headlining was a sweeping romantic epic about the history of hawaii told through the life of king kamehameha starring as it says in the article pro wrestler dwayne the rock johnson he was up he was. It might be the same story because he was supposed to be doing a Hawaiian king story with Zemeckis like three or four years ago. Well, this was two thousand two. Wow. This article was written. Yeah, and, um, and he and he and at that point he had j- he just got into film. That's yeah. very new for him. Yeah, that's especially to build a. I mean, that's probably why it didn't happen. But to <laughs> build a a historical epic off off of yeah someone who had what done the Scorpion King at that point. Yeah, man, don't don't hate on Scorpion King. <laughs> Straight to DVD. Come on. No, no, no. Scorpion King was in theaters, sir. The oh, first, was it? The first Scorpion King was in theaters. The follow-ups were directed okay. to DVD, which he was not involved in. Gotcha. So, let's get that straight. Um, Bauer wasn't attached to these, but I did think it was interesting. Some this this article was in Variety in 2002, and it was just kind of like a, it was it was kind of like these are some of the biggest de- uh, development execs in town, and like here's yeah. what they're working on. Uh, some of the other projects mentioned were uh, the fact that Tim Burton had just taken over Big Fish after Steven Spielberg had also dropped out of that project. Yeah, the, the amount of projects that Spielberg <laughs> has dropped out over his career, insane. Like Rain uh, Man, and, and they end up being like big hits, like Rain Man he dropped out of. It's 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 wild. And this these 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 other projects are just mentioned as like sure things too, which is just wild to to see the ones yeah. that, that fall through. But um, yeah. I mean they were they were like positive that Training Day Two with Ethan Hawke was like coming up soon. Um, and never happened. And then another Conan film, King Conan, written by John Milius, yep. Yep. starring Arnold. And then as soon as Arnold was done shooting King Conan, he was going to be producing and starring in a Westworld remake. Oh wow! Yeah. Gosh, it, it, it is wild. Just like the ideas that just like you, you go for like two, three years, really going at, it and then just like stops. And then the one that gets made is this one about orchids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, it's it's about where the money comes from, man. It's, it's honestly what it is. It's like, hey, can you make it for this amount with this this with this cast? Sure, sounds great. So the job of adapting Orlean's nonfiction book was given to Charlie Kaufman, whose first feature script being John Malkovich was nearing production at Universal at the time. Uh, Kaufman had been a staff writer on a few failed sketch shows, including the famously doomed Dana Carvey show, uh, <laughs> which there's a very good documentary about if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, yeah, uh, and- I, I love the clip of like when it's it's like uh, the like really sad, like uh, what was what was the show that, that was their lead in? You know what I'm talking about? It's like it was oh, like yeah. very it was a like very depressing like it was home improvement. It was like mm-hmm. this like really like depressing episode of home improvement. And then it goes, Dana Carvey presented by Miller Light, followed up by or following home improvement. <laughs> and it just cuts to like Steve uh Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert, and they just all just start dying laughing. They're like, <laughs> they're like, Yeah, that was it. That that's what killed us. <laughs> uh so Kaufman, uh 
had written Being John Malkovich in 1994, and had spent years sending it around. Uh, prior to the blacklist, it was one of those scripts that just got passed around. Everybody was like, "I love this script, but like, you can't make it. It can't, yeah. can't be made." Uh, the person who ultimately saw it and said, "You know what? Somebody could do something with this." Was Francis Ford Coppola. Oh wow! Uh, he read the script and he put Kaufman in touch with his son-in-law at the time, music video director Spike Jones. Mm. Oh yeah, he went there. Uh, Jones was one of the hottest music video directors in town and his collaboration with Kaufman on a script that had been notoriously passed around Hollywood for years earned a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. So his production on being John Malkovich neared, um, Bauer began courting Spike Jones to attach him to Orchid Thief and Jones recommended Kaufman to take a swing at the script. It should be noted here as we get into Kaufman's experience at adapting the Orchid Thief that this was the first script Kaufman had ever been had ever written on commission. Yeah, he had built his career at this point. He had been he'd written for the um, Harvard Lampoon, mm -hmm. and then like before he even came out to Hollywood, he just wrote he wrote spec scripts like crazy, like Seinfeld, like everything that was on yeah, TV. Yeah. He wrote a spec script and mailed it off, and that's how mm -hmm. he got some of those sketch shows. But but that was really he had just spent his his early career just writing spec scripts and so now he's handed this book by a studio and they're like hey make this you know it's it's a completely different process and you're like yeah <laughs> <laughs> so as if the uh, plotless nonfiction book wasn't already hard enough to adapt uh, Kaufman was struggling with his own desires for where he wanted his career to go his first feature had sold on its own merits. You know, it's very unusual. It was very out there for the time. And, and people liked that. It got bought mm -hmm. because of that. And it remained relatively untouched in production. Kaufman and Jones famously walked out on a deal with New Line to make the film after New Line asked them to change it to being Tom Cruise. Yeah. Uh, so Kaufman wanted to continue to push himself creatively without succumbing to quote unquote Hollywood standards. Mm hmm. So as depicted in the film, Kaufman ultimately found himself with a severe case of writer's block and eventually began writing himself into the script, making it instead a story about adapting an impossible source material. He says he really only began writing this version of the script as an excuse to just get anything down, which, you know, that's anybody will tell yeah. you that you know, it's just yeah. just right. Even if you know you're going to throw it out, something yeah. something might come out of it. Mm -hmm. and, and he had never really intended to turn it into the studio. But while they were working on being John Malkovich, he told Spike Jones kind of what he was doing. And Jones said, oh, you've got to you've got to keep going with that. That sounds amazing. So Kaufman stalled the studio while he finished this version of the script. He eventually handed in his his third draft of, of this version of, of adaptation. Mm -hmm. uh, Amy Bauer was admittedly thrown for a loop with this new take. But Jones was really on board as well. And so they decided, hey, we'll make we'll make this version. And, yeah. and first step was clearing this fictional story with all of the real people that Kaufman had written into it. <laughs> I can't find anywhere that John LaRoche had any problem with this movie. So, okay. <laughs> so he was at he was at the premiere, but there's not a lot of like oh, wow. interviews with him about, you know, whether or not he had any issues with the way he was depicted. So it sounds like he was cleared cleared fairly easily yeah uh robert mckee put up a little bit more of a fight he uh he wanted to get the full script and he wanted to have several note sessions with charlie yeah, kaufman he, he probably wanted to give a rewrite yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right 
because for those who don't know, Robert McKee, and we'll talk probably, I mean, maybe you'll talk about more of like, is kind of seen as this quote unquote screenwriting guru mm-hmm. who, and like story consultant, who's, to my knowledge, never written a produced script. I will say that. Um, I think he's written several times, but he's never, he's never done a, a produced script. Um, at least feature at least. Um, but he's been seen as like a massive, like he, he's a, a, a mentor to several people who have followed, who took his seminar. He took a, he did, mm-hmm. a big seminar here and there, um, done several books. And for some, his stuff, his, his work is the Bible for screenwriting is the thing. So I could see him being like, Hey, I want to rewrite this. Yeah. I, uh, I have thoughts. Yeah. I have thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so kind of understandably, the hardest person to get to sign off on this was Susan Orlean. Yeah. Uh, the script, which was supposed to be an adaptation of her book, has her doing drugs, wielding guns, and falling in love with a subject, which is what she objected to the most was, you know, her kind of journalistic integrity being, uh, being questioned in this movie. Uh, so she, she said she, she very nearly just just said no but producer ed saxon got on the phone with her and said um she she said first off she said i realize this is probably the way that cops do it in interrogations but but saxon said everybody in the movie is using their real names everyone else in is going to use their names and we really want to be able to use your name and orlean said but i feel funny here i am using drugs and having sex with my subjects and Saxon said, Susan, look at Charlie. Charlie's masturbating through the whole movie using his name. <laughs> and, and Orlean said, and I thought, you know what? He's got a point there. What am I complaining about? <laughs> she said, ultimately, if Kaufman could portray himself as pathetic as he is in this movie, that she was fine <laughs> with uh, whatever they had to say about her. So I get, I get that. Yeah. So she, she signed off and everyone had approved. So. I, I wonder if Bauer kind of half thought they wouldn't get past this point. She was like, you yeah. know what? Let's let's ask. Let's see. And then they're going to so- say no. Yeah. Someone else gets to be the bad guy at that point. But yeah. um, but they were through. So the first person attached to the movie was Tom Hanks to play Charlie and Donald. OK. Very, at very some different point, role for him. Yeah. At some point that changed to Nick Cage. I can't really find why. I'm sure it's a scheduling thing that happens happens all the time. Uh, this, this is O two, right? Let's yeah. see. So, let me see. What's he making? What's Hanks making? Probably something. Something with Spielberg. Yeah. Well, I know, like Castaway, I think is O one. Um. Oh, oh two thousand was Castaway. Road to Perdition and Catch Me If You Can was two thousand two. Mm. It's a solid year. Solid year Sol- for Hanks. Solid year for Hanks. It's it's not a bad pass up. It's a mm-hmm. he didn't make a he didn't make a bad film in that. I guess we'll say. Uh. Yeah, what whatever happened with Hanks, Nick Cage ended up obviously getting the role, and Cage was Spike Jones's cousin-in-law at the time. Uh, the role for John LaRoche came down to Chris Cooper, John Turturro, and Joaquin Phoenix, with oh, Phoenix wow. making it very close to getting the role and ultimately recusing himself and saying it should go to Cooper. Oh, wow, really? Mm-hmm. Interesting to wa- Joaquin. Meryl Streep had gotten her hands on the script at some point and called it the best script she had ever read, and she offered to significantly cut her fee to play Susan Orlean. Yeah, and she was having a really good year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Because the hours was also this year, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. And then uh, Terrence Stamp, Albert Finney, Christopher Plummer, and Michael Caine were all considered to play yeah. Robert McKee. But uh, during one of his uh, script note sections with uh, Kaufman, McKee said, you know what? Brian Cox is a good friend of mine, and you should put him in this movie. Well, I didn't think McKee actually got note sessions with him. That's insane. I thought yeah, they were just yeah. like, no, we're not doing yeah. that. Kaufman said he had uh, several note sections with McKee. Wow. Okay. I, I take back. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> wild. Uh, so the cast was set and production began in March of 2001. Okay. So, you know, didn't dip into the, the plot line a little bit too much, but, uh, but no. let's get into, let's get into favorite scenes. So now, all right, now let's blur yeah. fiction and reality a little bit. I mean, again, right out of the gate, the opening monologue was over the titles. I was like, oh yeah, this is so relatable <laughs> as a writer where you're just like, all these different things pop up. And I, later I know he says like, I should get a muffin. No, I should write first. <laughs> I should write first because then the, the muffin will be a reward. And I'm like, yeah, that's the true thing. It's like, <laughs> all right, let me write five pages and I can order DoorDash for, for dinner tonight. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of what comes off as sometimes. Or like, also, it, it really captures the, saying all that, it captures the the mindset, the inner monologue of a writer where like, I will do things like, you know, I should go clean my closet. I haven't cleaned my closet in like a yeah, four, yeah, five I months. Could, let me just think of anything I could do other than, than, than sit, sit here and realize write. that I'm not writing anything. Yeah, and realize that I'm not good at what I should be doing and what am I doing with my career? I should I should move back. I should do all these different things. All these different things are popping in your head um, in a very fleeting way. And it, he really captured and, and like how you're, and it will go off of that of just like, I, and you start kind of criticizing yourself, but your your physical appearance, your mental state, and then it's like, I wonder what's on TV right now. Like things mm-hmm. like that just kind of pop in there. So he, Kaufman, really captures that. I mean, the question is, do we do we keep do we say it's it's all Charlie, or do we say it's Charlie and Donald that wrote this script? It's uh, Charlie and Donald are, are credited with the the writing is, of the script, which, yeah. which is just wild. <laughs> um, and I guess I I love early on. When Charlie, because Charlie and Donald, Charlie being your main character, who's your main kind of writer here, and then Donald, his twin brother, it, it feels like it's the difference between like an experienced, like like movie person, and a person who just got off the bus mm. with Charlie and Donald, because Donald's so like naive and innocent and just like, hey, I'm gonna write a thriller, and uh, it's gonna be really cool, and it's gonna be a multiple personality disorder. And uh, all these different things, and you're like, and you're like, I- I'm gonna pitch my ideas. Like, don't say pitch, don't say pitch, Donald. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Like, he's just so like, so excited about being in movies. Mm-hmm. You know, he's never, he's not actually in the industry. In the, in the industry yet is the thing. Um, and it just reminds me of like when you meet younger people, or not even younger, but just people who come to LA for the first time to be a writer, and they're just like, oh, I'm gonna do this, this, and this. And the thing about Donald is that everything happens for him. Like everything mm-hmm. that like. That never happens for a writer where he's like, oh, I, he gets, he gets a really, he gets a, a nice girlfriend. He gets a script and sells it to a, a studio or whatever. Like it's like everything goes right for Donald and Charlie. It's just like, it, it's that, in, that, that almost imposter syndrome that pops up in Charlie where he's just like, I shouldn't be here. What am I doing? Like, yeah. And you can also, I feel like you can see where Charlie came up with Donald and this like grass is greener. Like I, I, I wish yeah. I could just be the type of person who was happy writing Hollywood yeah. trash. You know, it's, it's, yeah. I, it, I, 
my own personal uh inner thoughts sometimes every once in a while i'm like man i I just you you know you turn on those like uh uh hallmark christmas movies and you're like man i could just churn out five of these it would be so easy and the truth is it's probably not you know (laughs) but but you just always think there's somebody out there who's having a a better time of it than you and and you're like oh if i could just if i could just bring myself to write like some stupid blockbuster it'd be so easy and and The truth is everybody's everybody's struggling. That's just difficult. But yeah, it's but but he is this like ultimate he's he's like all ego just like just getting by on 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 his his pure ambition and and so you can see him being this and I mean obviously it works in the movie because Charlie and Donald become this kind of yin and yang, but but you can also just see as Charlie's writing this this idea of like if I was this person, all my problems would be gone. If I was Donald none of this would be happening to me right now. Yeah. I mean, it feels very much like therapy for Charlie Kaufman <laughs> where, it, where it's like, and, and again, it's like to, the creation of Donald makes sense because it's hard to make a movie about a writer because you have to have something from the, like to, to, to bounce off of. And he's using the, 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 the voiceover, which is nice, but you need something else there. And so it always feels like Donald is kind of this, it's it's the it's the it's the good angel bad angel type thing mm-hmm. is the thing and charlie's the bad angel and, and donald's a good angel <laughs> essentially um yeah but what about what about a scene for you i kind of said i kind of said kind of sections but what's a what's a scene or <laughs> section section for you i mean i i think the the one that that it's it's one of those great scenes, but but it only really the genius of it only really plays out in the context of this movie. Like you can't you can't just pull it and show it to somebody and be like, ah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but you know that his his opening scene with Tilda Swinton where he's 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 like, this is I want it to be this. I don't want it to be this. I don't want. Yeah sex and drugs and guns and <laughs> yeah and then to ultimately know that that's what it turns itself into Me is too. is it's it's almost like you 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 do th- i think on on a first viewing you by the end of it you do think back on that scene but it but it is fun on a rewatch that it opens with that and you know that the journey you're about to go down is ultimately going to end in all of that and the sweating on his face <laughs> whoever did that like the makeup or whatever we'll, we'll talk about just, that okay it's just perfect um it's 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 fantastic I, I, when it cut to that i was like oh my god that's great <laughs> that's great sweat just little like beads of sweat just like stop like just stuck on his face it's mm-hmm. wonderful um tillis Swinton's great too and, mm-hmm. and, and 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 doesn't have a lot to do but like she's she's really good of like being the 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 nice hollywood executive is the thing yeah um she's she's really trying to encourage him yeah everybody was and i mean you know i think that's a good reflection of like everybody was very excited for being john malkovich uh and had a lot of buzz and i think that's that's part of the only reason that kaufman was able to get away with with sitting on this for as long as he was and then turning it in and it not being what he was being paid for yeah no, it, I just, I just, I, yeah, I could not imagine being a studio exec thinking you're going to get a, a movie about a lady going to Florida and meeting this like eccentric character about orchids and it ends up being this. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's like, it's basically written by Chai Kaufman and it's first part like Chai Kaufman as the, as the main character. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> That's a mind bender. 
Um, a scene I like because again, I, I think Chris Cooper and Meryl Streep are great. I think uh, Cooper is again, it's it's what kind of Taylor Swinton said. It's such a great character to play, like, mm-hmm. and it's true. But I love the scene when they're in the van and talking about adaptation and adaptation in a different way. It's almost mm-hmm. like evolving. Um, but it's interesting to kind of hear them discuss it and think of it in terms of possibly how Kaufman views it because while he you say he wrote a lot of spec scripts this is feels like his most it's first produced movie where it's like it's a it's technically based on a a different idea Mm -hmm. and i feel like sometimes for writers there's this thing of like oh i'm not as good as an original screenwriter because I'm, i'm i'm taking someone else's idea and adapting it it's not from my brain um, so it's not as good. And I wonder right. if like, that's part of that conversation there too, where it's like, I think adaptation is cheap because I'm not actually, it's not for me. And he kind of talks about later on of like, I should write my own ideas. Like I shouldn't be adapting something else. Like it's, it's, this is nothing. This, I can do nothing with this. Like it's just mm-hmm. taking away from me, my originality or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. there's levels of it. Um, yeah, it, I, it, I like it's, it's commission, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I definitely think for him, working on commission for the first time was a huge part of that kind of mental block. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but yeah, it's, I, I like that scene. And then another thing I like too, with Cooper and Streep is when Cooper is talking about the car accident with, oh, his, yeah. with his family. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of have this very, uh, really intimate kind of heart to heart moment. And it's like, basically Chris Cooper is, He's obsessed with his. All right, it's. I said he said she says early on he's obsessed with his mom because his mom died, but then you find out that Chris Cooper or Chris Cooper's character John LaRoche, his wife, his mom and uncle were leaving one day, and and LaRoche was backing the car out of the driveway, and a car is flying down the road, and he doesn't see the car coming, and hits and kills his mom and uncle, puts his wife into a coma. His wife comes out of it and is like, hey, I want a divorce. And it's that great moment when Meryl Streep's just like, I probably would have done the same thing, is what mm-hmm. she says. And he's like, why? And she's like, well, like, you can't be judged if you, uh, if you leave. Like, it's like, it's, you almost get a free pass. You're not judged mm-hmm. for leaving it because, like, you almost died. And he's like, well, I judged her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I read, I read one review of this that's kind of talking about how, kind of as opposed to being John Malkovich this one is so has so much charlie in it that that Spike Jones kind of disappears into this movie a little bit yeah, and yeah. they they specifically highlighted the car wreck sequence as as something that like only like like you know I'm sure Charlie probably wrote like there is a car wreck and just the way that Jones shoots it is so effective yeah um and 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 a, a really standout scene of his direction kind of the way we're in the car and Mm -hmm. and then we're kind of over him as he's being wheeled away and i I think that's such a great reveal too because people have been judging him so much through what we've seen of the movie for not have for missing his front teeth and oh he's such a hick he he doesn't have front teeth and then in that scene we kind of i mean he doesn't say it specifically but he says like that's that's the day i lost my teeth and you realize it's like this 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 sign of like penance or something like, yeah. like he, he can, he, he can't get them replaced because it's the guilt that he carries. You know, if he feels marked yeah. by what he's done and, and to get it replaced would be to like wash his guilt clean, which he, which he can't do. He can't do. He can't do. And Cooper just plays it so well. Like, so like Chris Cooper is an actor and I, I know it's kind of like, 
he had been popping around for a bit. He started in se- several John Sayles movies, but this was kind of almost his breakout role. It feels like, like as a as a character supporting mm-hmm. actor, like he was in a Time to Kill, but like this is where like I think people really realized how talented he was as an actor. I feel, um, and that scene with him is with him and Street is great. They're both great. Um, do you have another scene? Oh man. <laughs> um, ping pong back and forth yeah 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 i mean i i i love I, I guess we can kind of combine them but you know there's a lot of kind of charlie's social anxiety in this movie but the two scenes of him almost meeting uh susan are so painfully awkward oh, yeah. it is yeah. it is awful to watch but very effective yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know him just this feels like such a feels like such a modern scene too of like the running into the restaurant for your takeout and then seeing someone you don't it's like i just yeah. want to take my bag of takeout home by myself and, and i love that he for, he actually forgets <laughs> yeah, the, he, takeout. He leaves the takeout <laughs> but yeah this whole and, and you know it's after the scene where he, he masturbates to the picture of susan on the on the cover which is which is <laughs> a, i feel like a turning point in the movie <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, that, yeah that's that's where it turns um, uh but but you know then then uh amy's just like oh yeah susan's just around the corner and you have that shot of of the he, empty he, he like, looks yeah. through the doorway and then there's just this possibility of her coming through the doorway in any second like, and it just sends him into a pure panic and speaking of his social anxieties like the cage portrays specifically Tra- charlie because i don't think donald has social anxieties uh, as you learn later it, but but charlie the way cage portrays it is just so fantastic where it's like it's i I mean i i there's parts where i cringe in this movie because Mm -hmm. it's so good and like it's those scenes it's the stuff with judy greer uh at the la pasta place or whatever Mm -hmm. specifically the second time when he's Mm -hmm. like it's going really well and i'm like at, at first you're thinking wait is this part of the dream from before is this reality? Because she's like very, she's like super nice to him, and it's like, oh, okay, maybe this is part of his dream. And then when he asks her to go to the orchid convention, it just goes like a nosedive. And you're like, like, oh, yeah, yeah. No. And and I just like I cringed mm-hmm. when I when that comes up. He's like, oh, uh, I'm sorry, and I'm like, oh man, don't do this to yourself. Don't do this to yourself. Oh man, and all the all the stuff on set too. Um, you oh, know, yeah, where he, everybody's he just... waves at Cusack and. <laughs> I love the moment when when he's on the phone with Donald and he's like, oh, yeah, Catherine's over here. And he's like, Catherine Keener's in my house. <laughs> Second Catherine Keener appearance this month. Hey, hey, yeah. I mean, I, I love Malkovich's stuff at the very, the opening of the movie. Like it's 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 this movie, like while it's meta, but what's so interesting is that like it doesn't. With the Malkovich, the being John Malkovich touch, it's so just like so quick. It almost doesn't have anything to do with the actual movie itself it feels like because mm-hmm. it's just like it's like two scenes or like actually on the two or three scenes on the set of malkovich and it's so quick um and and spike which one's spike jones in because I, I know he makes an appearance but i can't remember um, which one i think he's fir- in that that scene yeah with okay, with malkovich gotcha. when he's okay. talking about keeping keeping it keeping it tight because not for me but for everybody in these masks oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah that part yeah, yeah, yeah. the open the opening and it's yeah, I just love and, and and I just gotta think something like Malkovich or Cusack where it's like, hey, can you show up for a day and just play yourself in being mm-hmm. John Malkovich? And they're probably like, I mean, 
what do I expect from you guys? It sounds it's on par with what we just made with being John Malkovich. I I mean, let's just dive into it. Well, actually, I'll bring this up first. I like the Ron Livingston scenes that he has with, with Marty Marty Bowen. I think is what it, mm-hmm. the, his agent's name. And he's, yeah, that's his, his his real agent. Ron Livingston, his character is just it's such your like stereotypical agent is what it feels like of mm-hmm. like oh I have sex with her. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is pre uh pre entourage, pre yes. pre Ari, but <laughs> it's very much like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And why I, I, I was I was looking because I was just trying to find the scripts that are on the back of his desk. Because mm-hmm. if you watch, they have them written. He has one for Spencer Haywood, like a Spencer Haywood biopic, I guess. Oh, okay. From the Lake from the Lakers. Yeah. Um uh, or other other about the basketball player. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh interesting. Um yeah, but next next to kind of last big scene that i'll bring up is the uh the stuff of brian cox as robert mm-hmm. mckee yeah because he's he's amazing and it's and that again i saw this me one time and this part has like stuck with me when when he's just like doing his seminar and is just like berates charlie well there's what do you mean there's nothing that happens in life yeah people so die <laughs> Well, and, and you know, right There's before that is, is obviously, I think, kind of the most obvious kind of meta moment in the movie is is when he when he starts screaming about voiceover, and then it just cuts out. You know, this voiceover that we've had for the entire movie up to this point, and then McKee's yelling about not Don't using it. Don't you dare you voiceover! And then it's just silence. It, <laughs> it's so good. Um, but yeah, his his speech after that. Um, that's that's kind of when the next day when when uh charlie comes back for the next session and and yeah he asks that you know what if i just want to make something that's true to life with, with like no no plot or anything and he's like what are you t-? like life is every day someone falls in love someone sacrifices yeah. themselves a life is ended it's 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 yeah. such an insult to and i mean i think i think everyone is kind of everyone who's who's written at some point has kind of fallen victim to that is to be like oh i wanted to be i wanted to be real and it's like there's yeah there's there's tragedy and triumph and everything in reality and and so to to it, it, i think that's that's one of the the real triumphs of this movie is as we as we start to get other people's perspectives as we start to get mckee's perspective on the script as we start to get donald's perspective on the script it, you know it, it feels like within the movie it feels like all these other people you know yelling at charlie like but but you know when when you remember that this is also charlie coming up with this stuff it it's 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 so interesting to to know that this is also what was on his mind while he was writing this you know he obviously approached it with this idea of like it's it's gonna be real there's not gonna be sex and violence and blah 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 but but all this stuff about like everything has a plot life is plot um that's that's all in there as well no, yeah, and, and and then what I love too is the follow up moment where you have the big blow up in the seminar, and then you have the kind of like sweet, almost sweet moment at the bar mm-hmm. when McKee's like, "Oh, this is what you got to do. You got to do this," and it's and he's like, "Whatever you do, don't you dare bring a dose ex machina in this movie." <laughs> and then when I saw the gator at the end that like gets Chris, I was like, oh, "Dose ex machina, dose ex machina, right there." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I Which think the so, first so great. The first time you watch it, you kind of expect McKee to just kind of turn him away uh, when he approaches him. But yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I love that that 
that he does take him out for a drink and and talk about it with him. But I mean, you've got to imagine as a as as someone who teaches writing to have someone come to you and be like, "Hey, I'm I'm really struggling with with adapting this nonfiction book about the entire history of orchids." It's like, yeah, no, that's a that's a unique challenge to yeah. to to consult on. Let me see what I can do. Well, I, and the thing I love because this is so Robert McKee is he keeps mentioning Casablanca because mm-hmm. if you've read story, he loves Casablanca yep. <laughs> and he'll break down multiple scenes in the movie, in, in his book. And, and I think even I've heard that like for part of a seminar, he literally goes like line by line and breaks down the entire script, or at least at one point he did. And there's moments where he's just like, the Epstein brothers, they're twins. They were twins and they wrote Casablanca, <laughs> one of the greatest yeah. scripts of all time. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, wow, that that's such a like subtle, like just minuscule detail that no unless you know Robert McKee will mean nothing to you, but I think it's hysterical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah, any more final scenes? Uh I mean, you know, the 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 kind of obviously the kind of finale as a whole is is yeah. is very memorable with with Meryl Streep snorting orchid drugs and and chasing them through a swamp with a shotgun but uh, i i do really love that that kind of quiet dialogue scene and and that charlie is able to work that in uh yeah but, about but the, i think about, it's about the about donald being like made fun of yes. by the oh, girl it's so it's, good it's, it's so good, so good. Uh, to just him for for Charlie to be like, I care so much what people think about me all the time, and and Donald to just kind of be like, yeah, that's that's it's, that's, it, that's my secret. <laughs> yeah, he, he's like he's like, he's like well, it's like talking about because like, he it's a girl he loved, and he's like, yeah, she was making fun of you when you walked away. He's like, I know. Yeah. He said, well, I how, knew. you you didn't think you, you weren't upset. He's like, he goes, I can't control how they feel. Mm-hmm. I knew I loved her. That's all that mattered to me. And you're like, <laughs> wow, that seems so simple. yet so hard to do there, Donald. Um, but yeah, yeah, that moment happens in the middle of like two people shooting at them, trying to catch them in the swamp. And you had that little just intimate moment between these two brothers. And it's so sweet. It's so sweet. Yeah. I mean, I love Streep and we'll talk, maybe, maybe we'll talk about it later, but like Streep's just like complete character change <laughs> when mm-hmm. it gets when it gets to down in florida where she almost becomes this like just like drug we have to kill him he's seen too we much we have to kill him he's seen too much and you're like what you're a new yorker you're married to curtis hansen what are we talking about here um no i love but i i wrote a comment down when i love when chris cooper's like when it cuts to him he's like oh yeah i'm on the internet i discovered i'm working in pornography right now like people <laughs> People will just buy <laughs> pictures of nude women. And I was like, did, did John LaRouche invent OnlyFans? Is that what happened here? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was great. It was great. Um, yeah, I do love I do love the the way that they and, and that comes from Orlean as well, but just this way that LaRouche is this person who who moves from obsession to obsession and yeah. uh and commits to it fully and then and then when he's done he talks about you know i'm never yeah. never set foot in the ocean i love the ocean yeah. but i said i was never gonna go in again because i'm done with fish <laughs> I and mean, that's the thing that's so fascinating about this movie is that that kaufman is able to and i haven't read her book but she's still he's still able to capture essence of the original book it's not completely thrown away but you have yeah. moments that feel like it could be from the book 
and you're talking about orchids and he somehow like brings that into it yeah um, he's still he's still you know when you're when you're talking about adaptation he still yeah. adapts the heart of the book which is this search for inspiration and i think that's yeah. what's, what's really genius about what happens here is is he doesn't completely toss aside his initial assignment he, yeah. he, he just uh does it his way he adapts is mm-hmm. what and what he does you know why i like plants huh because they're so mutable adaptation's a profound process it means you figure out how to thrive in the world Yeah, but it's easier for plants. I mean, they have no memory. You know, they just move on to whatever's next. With a person, uh, adapting is almost shameful. It's like running away. For on-set life, uh, the film shot for around three months in the summer of 2001 for a budget of about $19 million. Okay. Uh, special effects guru Tony Gardner was bought, brought in to create prosthetics, to not only make Nicolas Cage appear overweight as Charlie, but to also allow a physical stand-in for Donald as often as possible instead of trick photography. So they made kind of a suit and, and a wig and everything mm-hmm. uh, to to try and try and minimize the amount of times you have to do those. Because for anyone who doesn't know, when you do that kind of trick photography, kind of obviously you have to do a lot of takes because you've, yeah. and especially just with Nick Cage going back and forth and doing both. Uh, so I think the uh, Jones's preference was, you know, anytime we're not anytime we can't fully see like Donald's face, let's get somebody else in there for yeah. him. And they uh, and they do it very well. Like mm-hmm. the, the dual shooting of this, like there's only maybe one time where you can see a little bit of a highlight where they probably like crop something out. Mm-hmm. It's in the it's when when Charlie's sitting at his desk and it's a wide shot and Donald's in the background in the doorway. That's the only time you can spot it a little bit, but besides that, I think it works incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially for two thousand two. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gardner also handled uh, the prosthesis that made Chris Cooper's front teeth appear to be missing, which is mm-hmm. also incredibly well done. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in addition to creating a Donald suit, uh, Cage's brother Mark Coppola sometimes subbed in for Donald. Uh, while there is like two shots where you can see Charlie Kaufman actually playing Donald himself in the background when when uh, Donald is kind oh, of like wow. out of focus, they would have uh-huh. Kaufman stand in. Okay. Uh, Gardner used dried lentils to give a jiggle to the suit that he created for Cage. And uh, Cage allegedly became so sweaty so often in the suit that many of the lentils were found to have sprouted by the time the suit was dismantled at the end of production. Oh, my God. Wow, okay. Susan Orlean only visited set once, which was the first time she had ever met Kaufman. Uh, mm-hmm. It was about a year after she had initially read the script. And uh, she said upon meeting him, she said, you have no idea how embarrassed I am right now. To which he responded, not as embarrassed as me before running away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they would not meet again until a year later at the premiere. <laughs> I wonder what scene she was there for that they shot. <laughs> Oh man, um, it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. Hopefully, it's hopefully it's the, it's not, not the some of the last. Oh yeah, hopefully not, not that one. Yeah, not the masturbation scene when he's looking at the book. Yeah. 
Getting into the aftermath, the film opened uh, for an Oscars qualifying limited release on December 6, 2002. Remember remember when we they used to have to do those? What? Like, uh... Uh, I feel like the, the rules have gotten so... In the post-COVID world, the rules yeah. have gotten so much... Uh, that there was usually this little like two-week period of December where you were like, oh, especially out in LA, you were like, all right, well, if I want to see this one, I better go see it now, and then it's going to go away for like two months and then come oh, back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so limited release december 2002 wide release on valentine's day of 2003 what a great wow. what a great valentine's day uh <laughs> movie to go movie, see. yeah yeah when was the oscars for that year though that's kind of late okay no got oscars for late march okay that makes sense and um, then uh it opened to about 1.2 million dollars opening weekend eventually went on to earn a total of 33 million worldwide on a 19 million budget so mm-hmm not bad. No, not bad. For, for, for a prestige picture, I would say mm-hmm. it's a prestige picture. I mean, how much did um, being John Malkovich make? Give me two seconds. I'll look at it. $32 million. Look at that. For a $13 million budget. So, pretty. this one made a little bit more, like $500,000 more. So, mm-hmm. but this, also at this point, you got to realize that vhs and dvds like there's other i mean you can still make oh, yeah. money other ways but like to them it's like we'll make our money back on dvd and vhs oh, at this point absolutely in time. yeah the film was met with rave reviews from critics uh roger ebert gave it four stars and said i sat up during this movie i leaned forward i was completely engaged it toyed with me it tricked me it played straight with me then tricked me about that its characters are colorful because they care so intensely. They are more interested in their obsessions than they are in the movie, if you see what I mean. And all the time, uncoiling beneath the surface of the film, is the audacious surprise of the last 20 minutes in which, well, to say the movie's ending works on more than one level is not to imply that it works on only two. <laughs> and Ebert loved this one. I think he, at the end of 2002, or at the end of 2003, he named it his favorite of the year. And then at the end of the decade, he had it pretty high on his list of the, the best of yeah. the decade. Yeah. Wow. Audiences were not as impressed as the critics. Uh, That's a prize there. <laughs> it earned a C cinema score, which is the, the one uh, where people are polled immediately after coming out of the theater. So yeah. uh, as, as we said at the top of the show, and as we've talked about multiple times, on this podcast people were not into meta narratives in nope. the early 2000s thousands, not at all they, Bewitched they, Josie the Bewitched. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah people were not about it um but awards voters agreed with the critics and the movie enjoyed plenty of awards nominations uh the golden globes the film was nominated for best picture nick cage for best lead spike jones for best director Charlie and Donald Kaufman were nominated for Best Screenplay, uh, while Meryl Streep and Chris Cooper both took home awards for Best Supporting Actor. At the Oscars, Charlie and Donald, Nick Cage, and Streep were all nominated, while Chris Cooper won his first Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. And probably off his only nomination so far, right? Mm. Has he been nominated again? I don't know. I don't don't think he has. Should have been for uh, Little Women. Made me cry. Oh, yeah, he is good. He's good. Uh, audiences have since come to embrace the film as much as the critics did initially, uh, as with most kind of postmodernism works from the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, and the movie now has a 4.0 on Letterboxd, and I'd say is pretty kind of universally beloved. 
the manager yeah. at my local blockbuster was was ahead of the curve on that one yeah i i, I take back what i said i said this was kind of cooper's breakout i think probably american beauty was that for mm. him like a few years yeah. before um yeah it's one that it's it it's and we talked about this last week with with blowout where like there's mo- you're not always trying to win for the time you're trying you're trying to win for years down the road and like mm-hmm. it's always so fascinating to me when a movie can have such a longer lifespan mm-hmm. like we talked with this with like i mean it's a little bit different but we talked this with 12, 12 angry men how like no one saw that in theaters when it came out and like more people have seen it probably in the last 10 years than saw it when it came out in 1950s Mm-hmm. And adaptation is one where I think it has gained a following over time because of, I think the appreciation for Charlie Kaufman over time and the appreciation for Spike Jones over time. Like you said, I think people probably after her were like, let me go see what, what other Spike Jones stuff. Cause Jones hasn't done, hasn't directed a lot of movies is the thing. So it's easy mm-hmm. to kind of go through his filmography. Um, but yeah. Uh, have you looked at what was nominated that year at the Oscars? Oh, I haven't. Let's pull it up. Let's yeah. see. Two thousand. Yeah, it's two thousand. It's a very. Two, it's a very early two thousands year. Oh man. Uh, uh, actor in a leading role: Adrian Brody, one over Nick Cage, Michael Caine, Daniel Day Lewis, and Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Chris Cooper beat out Ed Harris for the hours. Paul Newman, Road to Perdition. John C. Riley, Chicago. Shout out. Christopher Walken. Yeah. I did not remember Christopher Walken was nominated for Catch he Me was, If You Can. He was. I think it's his last nomination. Uh, as 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 of now. Nicole Kidman won for the hours. Salma Hayek and Frida. Diane Lane and Unfaithful covered yeah. that one. Julianne Moore, Far From Heaven. Renee Zellweger, Chicago. That's when Catherine Zeta Jones won for Chicago. Kathy Catherine. Bates, Julianne mm-hmm. Moore, Queen Latifah, Meryl Streep. Wow, well, the hours in Chicago really hot that year. Yeah spirited yeah. away one best animated feature yeah the the interesting the wild part i didn't realize julianne moore was nominated for two oscars this year for the hours and for far from heaven supporting wow. and leading um yeah best original screenplay was actually talked to her by um, uh, pedro motivar beat out far from heaven gangs new york my big fat greek wedding how many times do you see a rom-com get nominated for best original screenplay thomas and mm-hmm. each not, time not again? often not often um yeah oh yeah bowling for columbine year i remember this i remember when this happened because that's when michael moore like did his uh wow there are only two speech. nominees for makeup frida and the time machine the guy pierce time machine <laughs> oh wow yeah makeup usually for a while i had like two maybe three nominees oh and that's your eight mile one. Oh yeah and, and eminem didn't show up I was watching this year. This might have been. This wasn't the first year I watched the Oscars, but I distinctly remember watching this year at the Oscars, because I remember the guy who who won for who, who went up and took eight miles, like wearing like I feel like a, a NBA jersey <laughs> underneath a blazer is what it was. Um, and then Steve Martin was the host this year. Um, yeah, int- I, I I'm this is one of those years where I'm not really sure what you go for. The win of Chicago here, and I guess the box office success of Chicago, results in like a decade worth of just let's pick some old movie, musicals and adapt them for movies. Mm-hmm. We talked about this a few weeks ago with Eight and a Half, where they made nine, uh, and then you have like Dream Girls and stuff at the same exact period. Sorry, that's my tangent on that. 
Um, but yeah, so moving on, uh-huh. we've covered this a good bit, but what works, what works in adaptation? I mean, first off, the script works, I feel like, uh, it's just how he's able to blend all these things together and capture the book, but add all these new additions and, and it, it, it's hard to keep track of all these different things. Like there's so many different levels to this movie and it's so difficult as a writer to kind of capture all these different things um and still like i said have capture the heart of the original book that this movie is by the last 30 minutes is completely ignoring mm-hmm. um i think spike jones's direction is great i think it's a very subtle direction i guess you could say it's understated direction where like you talking about how the the rex thing is one of the big moments but like he he doesn't really do a lot of things that you might think Spike Jones would do like mm-hmm. coming after being John Malkovich and things like that. It's like, like the kind of dual performance of it all with that kind of effect of it. It's all very understated, which yeah. works, works for the movie. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's funny, but, but as kind of as meta textual as this movie is and how much it calls attention to itself as being a movie, I think it's more important that it calls attention to itself as being a script. Yeah. You know, there, there, there are movies that call attention to the, the nature of it being a film. Um, but that's not what needs to happen in here. We're, we're, we're not concerned with the, the, you know, some, some, we're not concerned with the process of making the movie. And so I, I, I think it doesn't need to be, flashy in any sense because what you need to be aware of constantly is the script not the camera yeah i agree and and a director a good director realizes that and and tries to step away when you have a good script you don't want to screw it up too much is the thing Mm -hmm. um and then i I think you know performances everybody everybody just kind of swings for the fences in this one like everyone's along to play you know um yeah, I, I saw an interview with Cage where he said this is one of the only movies where he was like going into it. He very consciously was like, I am going to leave all of my instincts at the door and yeah. just listen to what Spike Jones tells me and what Charlie Kaufman tells me, because this was a character that was so not familiar to him and was obviously yeah. so familiar to Charlie. And so he was yeah. just like, I'm just going to listen to what they tell me to do. And yeah. and I think it pays off. Not to say that that I don't like it when Nick Cage listens to his instincts, but um, but it doesn't always work. Uh, I think yeah. it kind of kind of famously, the, the Nick Cage has a shtick, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And um, it's funny. I mentioned this um, last week with John Travolta with Blowout, and I think Travolta's a, and they're very similar. I mean, they're in Face Off together as well, but like they're both actors where one more so than other. Where like if you let them loose, they'll commit to it fully, but it might be too much for the movie, so you mm-hmm. have to reel them in. So I think when they know what movie they're in, they have to know what movie they're in. Yeah, is the thing, and that's what's happening here is that Cage was aware of what move, what type of tone it was going for, and realized the best decision to make was to just let them point him in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and he do- he's incredible. Like it's like he gives two very distinct performances as Charlie and Donald. Mm-hmm. Like I'm never confused about like, which one's which now. Yeah. Like it's, it's the way it's the, it's the physicality of it. 
It's mm-hmm. the it's the the speech patterns of it. It's just it's so they're both very distinct. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's several of the reviews I read kind of mentioned that that like any other movie would have to give them some sort of like physical gimmick to to separate them. And it's just like the body language is all that you need. And yeah. Cage makes them two completely different people. It's like Charlie's a little bit more overweight, but it's more like it, you can't always fully tell that. It's, it's more thing. in like the way that he carries himself. He carries you know? himself he, kind of he's got over. terrible posture and, and he, yeah, he, he wears, he wears more layers and of clothing and loose clothing. A lot of the time mm-hmm. when like, when Donald's more just a one shirt type guy. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah. And then obviously street kind of just throwing herself into it completely that this, this is one, yeah. uh, when I was talking about kind of my history with it, when I was in middle school, my sister, my older sister got obsessed with Meryl Streep. And so we just started like watching, like, I think I, I've seen probably all of her movies at this point, man, Sophie's choice in middle school is a wild <laughs> ride. Yeah. yeah. That was, that was heavy. Um, but, uh, we didn't get to this one. Uh, I think mm. maybe, I don't know if it's cause she wasn't like billed as a, as a, as the lead of it necessarily. You know, you've got Nick cage on the cover. Yeah. Um, but it's one like after I saw it, I like called her. I was like, I've seen a Meryl Streep movie. You haven't. And she watched it. And I was like, that one was weird. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she, you know, she is, she is fully up for as crazy as, as, as it gets at the end of it. And, yeah. and, and I think, you know, it takes someone really special to be able to very realistically portray like a, a writer for the New Yorker who is having yeah. like very, a very subtle existential crisis, you know, so subtle that her, that her husband and her friends can't see it at the, yeah. at the dinner party. Um, but that ultimately turns into uh, chasing someone with a shotgun screaming through the swamps. Like it's, it's yeah. such a, it's such an insane arc for this character and i don't know who else necessarily could have pulled it off i agree i agree um any, anything else on, nothing else on for what me works? what worked all right so what doesn't work here i'm not so sure about the amelia character mm. yeah. and how they and how they handle her mm-hmm. because she ends up being the ending she's she's basically the ending of the movie mm-hmm. and i don't think she was built up enough to be the ending of the movie yeah i feel you i i yeah i don't i i feel like his kind of uh maybe that's that maybe that's kind of the the mainstream hollywood storyline that is a step too far in this one but like i I feel like he does not need romance he doesn't need a love interest when you know when when you're presenting me with someone who's so socially awkward that he can't have a conversation with with this woman that he's working that he's writing about then then to kind of take it you know i'm like fix that part of yourself before um and and you know, we have this kind of breakthrough with, with Donald and the breakthrough and the, and the screenwriting. And so, yeah, I, I think it does kind of as the final ending, uh, I think, you know, having this confessing his, his finally confessing his love to this woman does, yeah. does kind of feel like the Hollywood ending that we don't necessarily need. And I do, I do like that moment when, when he's like, I should, I should follow her to her. I should follow her to the door and, and tell that her I love her. And we're going to yeah. tell our kids about it one day. And then he just drives off. <laughs> he drives off. 
and and then the next time you see her is like kind of at the party, mm-hmm. but then we never really come back to her. So she's only seen she's only like three scenes maybe because it's like their date I think the original date, and then it might one in there, but then the, the the car scene when they're dropping her off, the party and the and then the ending. There's not mm-hmm. much else, and the and the party or the uh, the party scene to the ending is a big gap, and so it just feels like. That was never really an issue for a good chunk of the movie, mm-hmm. and then it becomes the ending of it. So yeah, it just felt odd. It felt odd. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, and, and and I know it's trying to say like he's evolving. I said he's he's evolving as a person. He's adapting, but she just needed to be in there a little bit more at some point, or have have more of effect effect on him when she wasn't there if that mm-hmm. makes sense yeah like he i don't does he ever he never dreams about her in that way does he He dreams about Jane yeah Greer yeah yeah she's Mar- like donald asks about her a couple of times but it's not really yeah. part of his kind of uh, when he when he's not around her it's not really part of of his world yeah is the thing so that that that's why i just felt kind of like okay we're ending here that's this is what we're going with I mean, I, you wonder if like could and like could you have done a Tilda Swinton ending or whatever, where it's about this, or I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. That's why that's I didn't write it. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think ultimately, kind of the stuff, of the the kind of breakthrough with Donald and the and the breakthrough with the script, I I, I think all overshadows that yeah, that kind of I final agree. ending. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That, that's else? my that's my only big that's thing. It? Do you have any, right. Do you have anything? Uh, no, I, I think I think I agree with you on that one, but yeah, uh, yeah I can't I can't uh, I can't speak can't speak to anything else. You know, I think if if you were watching it and 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 they didn't make a referential joke back to the kind of evolution sequence, you'd be like, ah, oh, that's a little self masturbatory. Oh, yeah. But then that's yeah. kind of, <laughs> that's the point of it. You know, it's like okay, beginning of time. No, there's no life, no life at all. Not a comet. Uh. All right. Uh, film facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Donald Kaufman is the only fictional character to ever be nominated for an Oscar. Hey. Uh, although if you do count Donald as just an alias for Charlie, uh, Dalton Trumbo was nominated under various aliases after he was blacklisted. Mm. But I think I like to think of it as Donald was nominated separately. Uh, the yeah, Academy yeah. apparently did reach out to when when uh, Kaufman was entered as Charlie and Donald. They reached out and they were like, all right, we're going to let this happen, but we're only giving him one statue. And they're like, OK, yes, that's that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to blur the lines between film and reality even further several filmmakers were cast in the film you mentioned curtis hansen plays susan orlean's husband uh, and mm-hmm. david o russell is also a dinner guest at the um, at the dinner party that they have oh i saw uh, <laughs> you, we saw you just weren't, weren't gonna bring it yeah. up curtis hansen yeah, big here. curtis hansen fan though big curtis hansen fan you know la confidential i mean O russell's a problematic figure nowadays even though i do like Silverlang's playbook and mm-hmm. some of his um, books. But yes. Character actor aficionados like myself might have noticed the legendary Steven Tobolowski in the end credits. Uh, I noticed in like, the credits. Yeah, I was like, wait, where was he? <laughs> yeah, where was Steven Tobolowski? Uh, he appeared in a deleted scene, but Jones and Kaufman uh, uh, asked to still give him a title card credit, even though his scene was cut. I literally rewound the credits. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, what was his character name? <laughs> like range or something ranger, so it must have like something ranger to do park with, yeah. steve or something yeah but we got jim beaver we, we do jim get beaver. jim beaver yep. yeah 
uh susan orlean also had a dialogue sequence uh that was deleted but oh. uh she does pop up in the diner when charlie's talking to judy greer so you might be a little distracted uh cringing <laughs> to uh notice susan orlean in the background i'm gonna give you extra pe- extra big piece of key lime pie <laughs> Uh, after the release and popularity of this film, Robert McKee added uh, to his symposium that despite what Charlie Kaufman might have said, he doesn't hate voiceover. He just thinks that if it only describes what we're seeing instead of actually adding to the story, that it is pointless. I agree. There's there's agree. a time and a place. Time and a place. Yeah. I think Sunset Boulevard does it incredibly well. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think noirs here. noirs get a get a gimme for pass. for the most part. <laughs> uh that's weezer recorded weezer recorded a cover of happy together uh to use over the end credits but it was ultimately decided to stick with the original version by the turtles uh in the in the cut okay at the very so, end of the credits there's a post-credit scene or oh, kind shit. of there's post-credit <laughs> there's a post-credit easter egg uh the credits end with a piece of dialogue from donald's film the three it says we're all one thing, Lieutenant. That's what I've come to realize, like cells in a body, except we can't see the body, the way fish can't see the ocean, and so we envy each other, hurt each other, hate each other. How silly is that, a heart cell hating a lung cell? From Donald Kaufman's The Three. <laughs> That's how it ends. I missed I didn't I didn't <laughs> I didn't go that far. Would you would you see the three? Would you watch it? I probably have seen the three in, like, <laughs> in a way. It's it's like when, when he was talking about I was like, yeah, I've seen a movie like this probably before. I've probably read a script like this before. Well, I, d- I did read one one person online was kind of like it's it the the three like the whole like cop and and uh, criminal being the same person is very similar to a scanner darkly. And yeah. Kaufman actually wrote oh, yeah. a Kaufman actually wrote a scanner darkly uh, script on 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 spec uh in the early 90s that that never got picked up so that's that's what it was that i bet that's all right moving into our awards all right we've got the beatrice Strait award for the actor or actress with limited scenes that kills it brian cox all right now back you back brian you on Co- that brian cox for me being is that i haven't seen this movie in over a decade and yet i still remember <laughs> god help his, you if you all, use voiceover i'm all of his scenes like he was it was I was like, because I, I don't know if I knew who Brian Cox was in the moment. So I was just like, oh, I guess this guy's the screenwriting person. And I realized later, oh, it's he's not the real guy. He's playing the guy. <laughs> um, so good casting to Robert McKee. Be like, hey, I have a good friend who could play me. Because um, he also they also look very similar. If you like look at them, they have a similar look to them. And I think, but yeah, I think Brian Cox really kills it in this in this role. First of all. You write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. Secondly, nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? People are murdered every day. There's genocide, war, corruption. Every fucking day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every fucking day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love. People lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find that stuff in life, then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. And why the fuck 
Are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie? I don't have any use for it. I don't have any bloody use for it. Okay, thanks. Annie Potts X Factor Award for the supporting actor or actress that is the most memorable. I would go with Chris Cooper. Okay. Is who is your choice? I mean, I was leaning street, but like it's it is neck and neck. It's All neck right. and neck. It really yeah. is. She he she comes she she makes it a good race in the back half of the film. Like when she's when it becomes the, like she's the drug addict New Yorker who's having a affair with John LaRouche. That's when she really comes alive to me. Like when she's doing the dial tone bit, the like that <laughs> bit is hysterical to me. Um, yeah. But I, I, I think Cooper just gets, he just gets a little bit of an edge on her is the thing. I think, I think he just, I think he, I love, again, I love the, 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 um, uh, the, or the, the um, talking about his, his wife and his mom and how they pass away. That's a great mm-hmm. dramatic moment. But then I love even when 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 the when Charlie comes in, he's like, "Oh, you're the screenwriter. Oh, you, <laughs> who's playing I, me? Who's playing me? I think I should play me." Yeah, I, I, I do. I do me. love him in that scene where he's he's just he's just like pleased to meet him, and then she's like, "Oh yeah. no, we have to kill him." He's like, "All right, I'm not she doing says it. so." <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing it. Well, she, I will. Okay, I guess I guess we're doing it. I guess we're doing it. Yeah, I, I think he gets a little bit of an edge on her. Is the thing. All right, I'll I'll back you. I'll back you. You got me. I killed my mom, you know, and my uncle. Uh, That's how I lost my front teeth. (laughs) And my wife was in a coma for like uh, three weeks. And she divorced me, you know, soon after she regained consciousness. Well, I think if I almost died, I would leave my marriage, too. Why? Because I could. Because it's like a free pass. Nobody can judge you if you almost died. Well, I judged her. Maybe I was being judged, too. It was like a month after that, uh, Hurricane Andrew came along and just uh, swooped down like an angel of God and just wiped out everything I had left. All right, and the Gene Hackman MVP award for the person who carries this movie. This is a tough one. I think it's I think it's tough because we would like to give it to Nick Cage because Nick Nick Cage really does do. a really really, do. really does a, puts a lot of work in, but I think I think the answer is obvious. I think it's Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. I wrote down Cage initially, but it's just like, because I will say this about Cage. I think, and maybe I'm wrong here. This is from what, from my knowledge, I think it's the best, like the best, like dual role I've seen by the same actor. Like one, mm-hmm. uh, one, one of the best, if not the best, I will say, because he just, like I said, he, he, he adds so much detail to each character, but because of the amount of, jumping back and forth and in terms of like there's so much jumping back and forth in timeline here that's like and it doesn't get really confusing to me where it's like three years later two years earlier all these different things are happening and again he balances the real and the fictional and it's just really it's such a difficult task to do all the all these things that Kaufman's doing 
besides the ending, as I talked about, he pulls everything off incredibly well. Mm-hmm. And it's it's such a tightrope. And like you said, this is a movie that's based more in the script than the direction. And if the script doesn't work, it's this is going to be a bad film, is the thing. Yeah. Because he's like breaking all the rules, but still sticking with the rules. It's kind of odd of how he does it, where it's like I put myself into the script. Oh, that's that kind of that's kind of bad, right? Or that kind of sucks, right? Um, so yeah, it's just I I I will go with Kaufman here. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I back you. It's 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 such an incredibly personal story for him to tell. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just just the fact that it that it happened that this is what he came to after being assigned this impossible task is fascinating to me. I think I think this is you know obviously we've had a lot of really good things to say about this movie, but I, I it, this is such an interesting piece of of media just in general. The the fact that this yeah. exists is yes. is yeah. wild to me. You know. Uh, and it's such an it's an indictment of Hollywood, but it's also kind of a love letter to yeah. movies, and it's and it's intensely personal about one man's own struggle with writing while also being a commentary on on the entirety of 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 film and art and passion yeah. and and life. <laughs> and it's it is it is wild. It truly contains everything. And um and you you said earlier about how good Kaufman is at kind of disguising mm-hmm. traditional storytelling within his movies. And it, and it's something, you know, we talked a lot about when we did our Paris parody month was like, you can't parody something you don't that love. you, that you don't love. And I think in, in a very same way, I, I think I wouldn't call this a parody uh, more like a, more like a satire, but I, I still think it, it would have been impossible you know, as as much disdain as as Charlie the character seems to have yeah. for like McKee and for for Donald and that type of storytelling, you you wouldn't be able to craft something like this without understanding traditional storytelling yeah. uh, and, and, and kind of respecting the tenets of it. I agree completely on that. So so very 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 unique, uh, very unique and very incredible. Uh, accomplishment for Kaufman and this isn't even his best movie which is wild uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the Gene Hackman that, that MVP award goes to Charlie Kaufman I can't wait to do internal sunshine spotless mind see what happens there <laughs> mom called it psychologically taught the other thing is there's no way to write this did you consider that I mean how, how could you have somebody held prisoner in a basement and and working in a police station at the same time Trick photography. Okay, that's not what I'm asking. Listen closely. What I'm asking is, in the reality of this movie, where there's only one character, right? Okay? How could you... What, what exactly would... I agree with Mom. Very taut. Sybil meets, I don't know, Dress to Kill. Cool. I really like Dress to Kill. Until the third act denouement. It's not how it's pronounced. Sorry. I, I, okay, sorry. So, final questions. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you want to do? Do you want to do a remake? I didn't know if we wanted to recast this one. What? What? What year? Do you want to do present? Do you want to do a different decade? Let's do a modern. I think for Streep. I think. I think I picked her recently, but I feel like Amy Adams is not a bad choice for Streep. Mm, or yeah. or Kate or Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet or Amy Adams. Okay. Yeah. Who, who are your thoughts? 
I think either mm-hmm. of those could do it. I think Adams, I think Adams, I'd see a little bit more towards the end. I think she can do that uh, kind of unhinged uh, when 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 the situation calls for it. I think she can yeah. do it very well. Julianne Moore would have been good uh, as well. Julianne Moore would be good, yeah. Um, so we'll go with Amy Adams for Mail Streep. Um, who's your Chris Cooper? Is Jake Gyllenhaal your Chris Cooper? Oh man, or is he too much of a lead guy? Or or he or might. he be or he better to be, be Cage? Is <laughs> would he be better to be Charlie and Donald? Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Um, yeah, I think I think he might, but I mean, he likes uh, he he likes playing a character. Yeah, uh, when given the shot. So, what about Let's, what about Colin Farrell for Chris Cooper or for for LaRoche? I, I I buy that. I'll buy Colin Farrell there. Okay, so he's LaRoche. Amy Adams is as uh um Su- Susan Orlean and trying Donald. Are we going with Gyllenhaal? Are we going somewhere else? I I have two people in mind. Okay. Okay. Uh, one of them has been in a movie with Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, that could be a lot. It could be could be Ryan Reynolds. Paul Dano. Yeah, that's a good one. He played a writer in I think Meet Ruby Sparks. Yeah. Yeah. Which he was good in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I think he could pull off the the question is who can pull off kind of the duality, of the kind of roles. believably yeah. be both. Uh, the other one I I think could really do both is uh Stephen Yoon. Ooh, I like that. Let's go with Dano. I think Dano could be great. Yeah. In this role, absolutely. I think Dano's got a little bit of cage. He's got a little bit of the cage in him. That's the yeah, that's the thing. I think he, he he can be a little more controlled in moments. Yes, is the absolutely, thing. absolutely. He's a more controlled actor, but I think he has some cage in him. Yeah, when he's singing uh, Ave Maria in the jail cell and, in Batman. And Batman. <laughs> yes, exactly. was, that's exactly what I was thinking. I was, it was just like, no, this is not the way it was supposed to go. Like, all, like that's yeah, yeah. I, I would I would go Dano here. All right, I like that. I like that. And and Colin Farrell, you got the re- Riddler and and Penguin uh, <laughs> in this movie. Everyone. And Lois Lane. There you go. There we go. Lois Lane. <laughs> um. So does this fit with any other genres other than than movies on movies? Um, is it a southern movie, Thomas? Is the question because they're in Miami a lot. They're in the swamp a lot. I don't know. I have some questions about Florida counting as the South. Sometimes I think it's a world of its own. It could be a Florida. It's definitely like a it's Florida a, crime a, movie, which a is Florida a Florida movie. Yeah. yeah, Florida crime. Yeah, I don't know if I say Florida noir, but I would say Florida crime at least for sure. Um, maybe noir. Noir. Um, it's got it's got voiceover. It's got voiceover. That's, <laughs> that's true. You're right. It does. Um, I mean, it turns into a thriller at the end in a way. Like I, I see, I didn't bring up that I love is when he's like, "Oh, Robert Keyes is everyone has a genre. My genre is thriller. What's yours? What's yours, Charles?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I hear that all the time when I talk to other writers. Like, hey, what what genre do you write in?" I was like, "I kind of write in whatever genre I feel like." Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, Florida crime for I think it, it's there's essence of it. Thriller, there's essence of it. Um, midlife crisis movie like like yeah. like existential crisis movie in a way mm-hmm. i think with Susie, with susan orlane i think even with kaufman um yeah do you have any other one besides those um 
I mean, twin, it, it, it's a twin twin movie. Like, a twin movie, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I know, I know that that Cage. Uh, if you go back and read a lot of interviews for Cage, kind of in the press tour for this movie, he talks about Dead Ringers like constantly. Like oh he, yeah, that was like his his touchstone for for this. That checks out. That checks out. I mean, Jeremy Irons is great in that role. That's mm-hmm. a great dual performance role as well. Yeah, performance. Yeah, and then it's you know it's it's I guess it, it, this goes along with kind of the being a movies on movies, but it's 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 a satire. It's a weird yeah. it's a weird little satire, but uh, but it definitely has something to say about about the way movies are made and the and the way we you know the the industry goes about things. And and I and I think even to an extent because I think the big overall question we ask a lot of this month is like, is it all worth it? And I think that to some extent pops up in his like, is it all worth it to be this like stressed out all the time? And like, is it worth trying to break this orchid book? Basically, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's just a different. I think I think it's not as apparent as the other movies, but I think it, it it pops up in this movie. Is it all worth it? Um, but yeah, but yeah, I think but it has the 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 Hollywood lingo, the the kind of archetypes of the the agent, the the actress, the actors, or whatever, like um, the insecure writer i think it all it definitely has all of that in mm-hmm. here um, yeah. like said, it's po- it's poking fun at it at at, at hollywood itself and mm-hmm. that's kind of key in, in some of these movies is to to know that you're that you can't take it super seriously is the thing yeah yeah and and you know that question of is it worth it is something that's that's come up many many times this month so yeah talk about that let's let's wrap this all up where does this fit within our month of 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 movies on movies how, how does this again it's a very unique perspective compared to all owns we discussed um it's like I said, it is it is i feel like it's more of a satire i mean sunset boulevard is also kind of a satire there but it's it's, it's very it's satirical in the, in the kind of modern 2000s era i guess i guess it's interesting is it there's when you do these movies on movies they're also reflective of the time in hollywood and I think this one is very much reflective of late '90s, early 2000s. Hollywood oh yeah, is the yeah. thing. It's definitely like a there's it's definitely like a like a Miramax kind of vibe yes. to everything that's yes. that's yes. going on here. It's like very the we, so. we got the prestigious book, and now we're getting this prestigious writer, and then we want to mold it into something that like kind of warps everything, everyone everything. that's involved. But it's gonna yeah. be prestige. It's gonna be prestige. That's the key. Um, so it has kind of that. So it's it's very it reflects the era um, that's released in, and and I think it's it's one of the top writer movies within this genre. I think mm-hmm. um, it like I said, it captures fully what it's like to be a writer, the mental state of a writer. So mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you know I know at least with with um, living in oblivion we kind of had this question of like does this have appeal to people outside of the industry and and this is one that that even though it is a movie on kind of writing for film and there are a lot of jokes in here or a lot of satire in here about the film industry i do think this one inherently functions on a on a more human level you know this is this is about the nature of of creativity and the nature of inspiration and passion and and even though that's filled that's kind of funneled through a lens of of mm-hmm. writing movie scripts it's it's extremely universal and I, I mean you could say the same thing for for uh 
some of the other movies here this month, but I, I do think this one is a little bit more. Uh, it, it's it's not as focused or, or as kind of exclusive to yeah. your knowledge of the film industry. I agree with that. I agree with that completely. Um. Well, yeah. So that's is that an adaptation? I think so. And then before we end it, real quick, final genre questions. We'll we'll blaze these real quick. Were there any movies that we didn't talk about this month that you wanted to bring up here? Now we've we finished. I mean, one one I I, I we talked about it a little bit this month because I it was one that I had recommended to you a while back. Yeah. But State in Maine yeah. is is one that I I really enjoy. But um, I also love a, a New Nightmare. Yeah, um, New Nightmare's great. It's it's very meta. People didn't yeah. people didn't like it. People didn't yeah. like how meta it was it. at the time. And I think people still don't like it's too meta, but I love it. <laughs> That's what I love. Uh and and you know, I really like I really like the comedies that that, that really poke fun at things. So uh obviously Tropic Thunder yeah. and um uh Bowfinger. Both, yeah, Bowfinger I, was gonna be one of mine too. <laughs> um, Bowfinger is a lot of fun, and uh, you know, on the same line with Eddie Murphy, Dolomite. Uh, Dolomite, Dolomite is my, is my name. name. Yep, yeah. really fun. Uh, ones I want to want to say, um, Babylon. Uh, for one, <laughs> I'm gonna to watch it. Again. I'm gonna see right, it just, just to bring it up again. Uh, no, Hooper is one I really love with Burt Reynolds. That's kind of a we never covered a stuntman type thing, but it's like the stuntman movie basically. Mm -hmm. And I really love that film. Um, part of it was shot in my hometown. So that's another big reason why, um, I love that one in lonely place with Humphrey Bogart is one of my favorite ones that kind of deals with the screenwriter and, and trying to adapt something as well. It's more of a noir version of this, uh, in a way, and, and kind of a, a tra or a tragic romance too, in a way. Um, and the last big one I want to bring up was Day for Night. Day for Night by Truffaut I think is amazing. Uh, and one of the best, up there with Living and Oblivion is one of the best like movie about actually making a movie, I think. And Singing in the Rain, those are kind of the, the big three for me. Um, so yeah, those are mine for this. Uh, and then Shout the Big Picture by Christopher Guest with Kevin Bacon, just because. Perfect film <laughs> school movie. Uh, and then what did you learn overall this month, Thomas? About this genre. You know, I think uh, it's, it was interesting that we kind of covered so many different aspects, but it all boils down to people being disillusioned with, yeah. <laughs> yeah. with the film industry. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it all boils down to the very nature of art. It's it's challenging. It's about challenging yourself. And if you're not asking questions, then then you're probably not doing it right. Um, yep. And, and it just ends up being, like we were saying, no matter kind of how focused it is, it all becomes this universal question of of creativity and passion and 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 you know i i think the film industry as a whole is is rivaled only probably by the music industry as as this art form that has been com completely monetized and and commodified yeah. and so it does become you, you you know it's it's something that you pursue as a as an artistic pursuit and then it also needs to become a financial pursuit you got to make yeah. money and um yeah. and it really blurs things and, and that that leads to a lot of these questions and and so to just kind of see how universal these these journeys are across across not only every aspect of filmmaking but kind of 
humanity as a whole is, is yeah. definitely a bigger picture I, you know it was something when we when i picked living in oblivion i was like is this, is this a too much of an in joke but but i think i think the the question of kind of what am i doing with my art and, and yeah. should i continue on the path that i'm on everybody can understand and it's obviously something that everyone's asking themselves yeah because they like said I, I keep asking is it all worth it that can be applied to anything in your life if it's is this job that I have, is it worth it? Is it worth my sanity to keep doing this job? Um, and I think that's here that I learned this month. Is again, the question as we're talking about is, is it all worth it? Is it worth possibly giving up on a life, like a personal life or certain things that could be beneficial to you just to make your art, just to do your job? Is it all worth it? I didn't, I, I didn't expect it to be as universal as it was. Um, but it is. So if you don't like your job, I guess you can relate to Sunset Boulevard or Living in Oblivion. I don't know. Um, but th- yeah, th- there is these kind of. It was surprising to see how everything kind of connected with that being a overall theme. Where mm-hmm. like there is a romanticized ver- vision of 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 movie making and filmmaking in Hollywood, but with that romanticized version, there's always that that underlying question and almost cynical question: is that is is it worth doing all this just to get this? You tell me everyone, <laughs> you tell me. Um, but I think that's it on movies on movies. Uh, I know we've continued. I don't know if it's coming out after this or before this, but we're, we're doing episode David and I on Vincent Minnelli's bad and the beautiful and two weeks, in another town uh, on our Patreon. So if you've seen those films are a little bit older, but two, we want to discuss this month. So two kind of connected films where one's kind of a spiritual sequel to the other. So you can find them check them out uh that'll be on the patreon two great films um to everyone who's been involved in the patreon thank you so much uh we appreciate you supporting us and kind of continuing uh being a part of i guess this family with us so if you haven't joined it's one dollar five dollar ten dollars you get uh our our newsletter stuff our our our, uh, extra episodes uh and hopefully we can try to do more there as we continue doing this show uh and then next month thomas what are we talking about or who are we talking about is the question. Uh, yeah, next month we're, we're finally uh, diving back into a, a full director journey. And uh, we're, we're diving into somebody that I think you and I have both really enjoyed mm-hmm. their their movies. And um, and we've never really had a shot. I think we, we did a we did a female director spotlight month a few years back and, and kind of debated doing her. But I think decided she needed a full uh, month uh, yeah a whole month and and so it's time to dive back into the films of Catherine bigelow yeah so. I'm, ex- I'm excited uh yeah. next week we're definitely doing the loveless and near dark her first two films and also blue steel i believe is, is what we decided hmm. on so i think near dark is currently streaming on shutter i believe uh i know blue steel is on tubi and a few other free places um the loveless i'm not positive about but that's gonna be episode one so stay tuned for that it's gonna be a fun month i'm excited mm-hmm. um and so we hope you are too um but that's it on this episode of the nation podcast um feel free to contact us at nation podcast at gmail.com send us your questions comments tell us how much you love this month tell us how much you hate this month i don't know um <laughs> what if you have favorite movies that we didn't discuss i'd like to hear that uh if you're a new listener to the show or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us be sure to do so as soon as possible so you can stay up to date on our, all of our new episodes. Uh, you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Yeah, guys, you know, 
might ask ourselves if is it worth it so getting a good getting a good review is a is a good way to uh to give us an answer because we ask that all the time <laughs> we love it we Creative love it pursuits we, yeah we love it we love introducing movies to y'all so hopefully you can yeah but tell us if it's worth it tell us you're like yeah you should keep doing it that's what we need to know um and finally don't forget to like and follow us on facebook twitter instagram letterbox and tiktok thomas as always thank you for joining me thanks for having me and thank you all for listening we hope you listen to more episodes soon bye <laughs>